What's going on? It's time for another episode of Too Hard for the Radio, transmitting from the future free state of Greater Idaho. I am the one-armed madman. And from the swamps of D.C., we have with us today, Guy Morris. <laughs> Guy, it's great to have you on. Uh, great to have you be here, Nick. I appreciate it. But just for clarification, I actually live in the Pacific Northwest. Oh, you're in the Northwest. I read D.C. on your thing. So, well, I, I guess I was completely wrong with that. You're in a better area. I'm, I'm with I thought. It's a much nicer area. There's no riots. There's no riot police. Uh, I'm on the Puget Sound. Oh. So uh, a lot of uh, blue water and green trees. And, and um, it's a little rainy right now, but that's par for the course. Now, I'm a Southern California kid. So for me, when it gets to be 70 degrees, my body tells me that's dead winter. <laughs> If it gets down to 65 or 60, that's an Arctic chill, but the pretty lady on the news says it'll pass. <laughs> right on. Yeah, I was uh, I was Southern California for a few years. I graduated high school in, in um, 2004, and I was a pretty good motocross racer, and I moved down to Southern California, and I raced motocross professionally for a couple of years, and didn't do very well, spent a lot of money, got hurt, got into drugs, and Ended up back in Northern California again. But, oh, well, sorry about that. I do yeah, love the... Does, does seem like a, a pretty kind of tough sport to be in. Yeah, I, I do love the Pacific Northwest, though. I did a um, I did a cruise through the uh, Inner Passage from Vancouver oh, yeah. to Alaska. And that's, I mean, one of the most beautiful places in the world. It, it is. I, I, it, as it turns out, I'm allergic to trees. <laughs> <laughs> didn't didn't quite work well and oh, I'm, I'm working through that i'm working through that right on well guy i really enjoyed your book and i want to get into it Thank here you. in a minute but um first off why don't you tell us a little bit about how it was growing up homeless i was homeless for a little while in my uh, 20s and i always like coming across people who i i say made it off the bench you know made it off the park bench because not many people yeah. do it was, uh, I was very young. I was escaping an extremely violent, um, abusive childhood. I was 13 years old. Um, I, I, in order to survive, I um, worked right alongside migrant workers. So I had to get up at four o'clock in the morning and go wait out beside the curb you know, in the cold until somebody could drive by and pick us up. And sometimes I got on the truck, sometimes I didn't. Um, and, um, but that was how I survived as a 13 year old. And, um, it was a traumatizing experience for me in a lot of ways. Um, but it was my choice. I knew it was my choice. It was a, a question for me of, you know, even if I fail and I'm miserable and I get hurt doing this, it's better than going home and doing it there. And so I was determined to, <clears throat> remake my life to not let my, I didn't want, I couldn't phrase it in these terms at that point, but I didn't want my past to define my future. And um, after a, a while, I actually, um, my stepdad was a big part of the problem. And, and so when he left for a time, at least um, I went home and, and got a GED at age 15 and left home for good at age 15. Um, and, um, but then I could get better jobs. I could, you know, work, parking garages and dig ditches for an Amish construction worker and, and um, 
worked at 7-Elevens and lumber yards and just about, you know, if, if driving produce trucks in the heat of Tucson, Arizona. So if you can imagine driving around in 115 degrees with no air conditioning, <clears throat> that's what I did for a while. So I was, I was never afraid of hard work. Um, I was only afraid of failing um, out of lack of effort. And, um, and so it was, it was, and I didn't really have any choices. I didn't really have, um, any, any, I couldn't qualify for any government, government subsidiaries or subsidies. I I couldn't, I had no family to really fall back on. Um, and so it was a question of a question of survival. Yeah. And the, the outcome for me was whether I was going to turn hard and cold and bitter or whether somehow I would um, overcome. Now, one of the things that helped me, and I know this may or may not sit with some of your Christian, some of your audience was that at age 15, just before I got my GED um, on sitting in a street corner on a street gutter, um, I accepted Christ. Okay. And that, sense of renewed hope that sense of i could become more like this this type of person and it wasn't that i wanted to be a religious fanatic and i don't agree with a lot of the i don't agree with religious uh, christian nationalism that's not has nothing to do with living christ-like that's basically a political movement so but i i wanted to i wanted to not follow after the the drug addicts and the uh, violent criminals and the um, promiscuousness. And and there was a lot of that violent, vulgar lifestyle I just didn't want to follow after. I had been burned by it. I had lived up. I grew up with it. I was saturated with it. Um, And there was a part of me that, that desperately wanted any kind of opportunity I could in order to change my stars. Um. By the time I was 19, I was already married. I already had a toddler. And through what I can only describe in my sense was a miracle, I got an opportunity to go back to college, which was really, (laughs) when they accepted me, I thought, okay, well, this is weird. I thought college was for smart people who did good in school. (laughs) I barely passed school. I was functionally illiterate. I had to get my first wife's help just to fill out the application. Uh, I thought, man, they'll take anybody. <laughs> they yeah. must be desperate or and, something. And they're actually set up to go more for you than the smart kid because you're more likely to take out that loan <laughs> than the smart kid a lot of well, the times. Well, I, I worked my fanny off. I wound up earning multiple undergrad degrees, uh, and I got a scholarship to grad school as well as acceptance to Harvard for grad school based on it took a while for my engines to start working, right? But I wasn't going to give up. And so I was working 16, 18 hour days between going working part time and going to school full time and raising a family. I slept about four hours a night for about five years. And um, it had some negative um, impacts on my health. Uh, I got really sick toward the end, but um, I, I, I made it through and I, I, I came out. I came out looking really good because I built a macroeconomic model that out forecast the Federal Reserve and everybody else in the nation. That got a lot of attention. 
Um, I did it because I, 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 I was obsessed with doing it because I made a, a, a bet, a wager with my dean of the college that if I could beat everybody else in building their macroeconomic models, he would sponsor me for a scholarship to grad school. And so I was obsessed on being uh, on doing it. So I was there at the data center every night for months from like midnight to 8 a.m. and working on nothing but this model. And it, it caught a lot of attention. Uh, across the nation. And so I got my first job at IBM and that kind of started me into a nice, a nice corporate career. So what's your background in economics? I've read, uh, read, read a couple of books on economics. I'm, um, well, my I, undergraduate was in economics. I decided not to go with my master's in economics as I was, I, I spent already spent six months in a basement data center building this, this great model, but yeah. I decided, you know, I'm not quite sure that's what I want my life to be like. Yeah. Um, I, so I've I read a couple to, I read a couple of um, Mises and Rothbard books and, and it's just like, you know what? I, I don't think I want this to be my life either. So I, I totally get that. <laughs> well, I love the, I love the policy. I love the theory. Yeah. I love the, um, the, um, uh, for me, economics was, was a masterclass in understanding how the world works. Mm. Everything revolves around economics. It's, it's a cheat job, code. Banking, it's employment, policy, taxation, trade, Everything in our modern world really will boil down to an economic framework. And um, and so for me, it was coming from a completely ignorant, um, um, uneducated childhood yeah. that really didn't understand. You know, I, I listen, if I listen to somebody on the news, a politician, it's like, I didn't understand what they were talking about. I had no idea who to vote for. Yeah, me neither. And I hated that idea that I, I was so dumb that I, that people could snow me. And so economics for me was, I did really great in it, um, obviously. Um, And it filtered into many of my other jobs when I was reporting to VPs and CXOs and others, uh, because I could speak to where the economy was going in a deeper way than others who might've come out of an engineering background or a marketing background could. Um, It's amazing. And and, and it's informed me in my politics and and the rest of my life. But... uh, there was a, um, I, I wanted to expand. One of the things that, in, that influenced me most in college was learning, learning to read uh, uh, books of every type, but also um, Men of the Renaissance. Men mm-hmm. of the Renaissance, what impressed me was that we were in an age, or we still are in an age of specialization. Yeah. Uh, people want you to be really, 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 really good at one thing. But back then, it was you had to be good at, at science, you had to be good in business, you had to be good in religion, you had to be good in art. It was about creating a well-balanced, deep, well-balanced individual. And that, that was an inspiration for me. That enticed me. That, that really clicked with me. And um, so I wanted to do other things other than just economics. I, I was a musician at the time. I thought maybe I would, might record at some point, which I did. Um, I wanted to explore management um, possibilities and international trade. I wanted to get more involved in computer, the um, burgeoning computer technology and industry at the time. Um, Companies like uh, IBM, um, Intel uh, were were really big. And so there were other aspects of life that really intrigued me and I didn't want to get shoehorned. I could have, I had a couple of offers to go work for banks I would have been doing economic models for years. And I just decided that I, I, I wanted to expand beyond that. It was a it was a way for me to gain that fundamental world understanding and to get my, my graduate um, scholarship, 
but at a certain point in time, I wanted to kind of do other things as well. Right on. So when did you get tangled up with the Sylvia? Right. Maybe explain what the Sylvia is and, and I had tell done, us how you got tangled up with this thing. It, very interesting question. And it's actually based on a true story. I had done some early uh, when I was with, uh, with the oil company, um, I, I was a, a known innovator. I was always bringing in new technologies into the operations to basically advance the operations forward based on all the work I had done in college with computer technology and computer algorithms. And so I was always advancing. I was the first one beyond. There was a time when there was only people that had computers, personal computers in the whole business were the vice presidents. None of the vice presidents or their secretaries knew how to use them. Um, so I was the first person to basically create a reason to bring computers into every group. Wow. Um, and then I was the first person to connect the personal computers to the mainframe and then start networking and then using networks across an early version of the ARPA internet yeah. to basically do communications globally. Cause I had teams all over the world and in order to communicate with them at the time, we either had to use a very, very expensive phone call where we knew we were being and eavesdropped by the local authorities or I had to do letters which sometimes would take months to get there and back. And it was a really inefficient way of running an international team. And so I was one of the first to use internet technologies there. I was also one of the first to use an early version of what we now call artificial intelligence. At the time it was called expert knowledge systems. Um, I implemented it in our group. Uh, it was a huge success, a mo well, moderate success. It, it was kludgy, took a lot of front end effort to, to set up. Unlike, because we didn't really have the vast amounts of data stores that we have now. Um, but I ran across, because I was constantly doing research, I ran across a short Associated Press article. And the article essentially said that a program had escaped the Lawrence Livermore Laboratories at Sandia. And if you knew anything, if anybody knew anything, they should contact this person at the, at, um, at, at the laboratories or this person at the FBI. Now, the Lawrence Livermore Laboratories is an NSA spy lab. They do signals technology, cryptology. They created the Suxnet virus, which brought down the Iranian centrifuges, a very hyper-sophisticated lab for the NSA. Um, and so in my head, I'm reading a spy program has escaped the NSA spy labs, and they don't know how to find it. And I'm thinking, <laughs> oh, my God. Cow. And they Holy put cow. out a... And they put out a missing report in the newspaper oh, like it was a little dog or something? My, my first thought oh was, my God. Oh, oh, crap, somebody at the Associated Press is going to get a, fired for basically the <laughs> stupid typo. It should have said it was lost. Or yeah. they, it should have said it didn't function or it, you know, it was corrupted somehow or, you know. Or it was stolen, you know. I mean, yeah. I could have I could have bought any of those things and, and not even bat an eye. But the verb that it used was escape. <sighs> so then I thought, well, that somebody at the NSA lab is going to get in trouble for basically leaking this to the Associated Press. Escape in my head said, well, that implies some kind of intent, some kind of intelligence, um, some kind, the ability for it, the program to move itself. And then erase the computer log trails of where it went. Um, and so I thought, well, this is amazing. So I actually, I, I cut it out. I taped it on my monitor. I looked at it every single day for months and months. 
And I kept trying to back into my head, okay, what kind of architecture, what kind of technologies would they be able to use in order to do this amazing stealth program capability? And so once I kind of had, took me a few months to kind of go through and do some research and read some articles and study up on a couple of other, it was still early in the internet. So I was still trying to understand some of those technologies. Um, And so, but once I figured out how it could do that, I thought, well, that's amazing capability. I wonder what they designed it to do that it had to have that stealth capability. And so I came up, I went through the data center. I spent a day going through the data center and I went a day through going through my office and I came up with, it's a spy program. So I came up with all these spy-ish. I said, what would I want my perfect Q James Bond spy program to look like, right? And so I didn't think much of it. A friend of mine at the time was um, a film producer. And so we, he was always looking for ideas and we went back and forth. Should we write a screenplay about this or should we, you know, maybe write a TV pilot about this? And I said, well, let's do this as an internet webisode series because it's an internet based program. And, and you, I could leverage uh, elements of the dark web and other things to basically give it some espionage, you know, kind of some, some fun elements. So we did, we produced it. Um, we hired some out of work actors. We did some photo shoots, wrote scripts, um, did the, all the programming, created a bunch of really great art around uh, this great data center that the Derek Taylor, the, the main character would have. Uh, and we've got 24, 25 awards. We got optioned by one of the studios. Two weeks before the stu- studio was gonna exercise the option, two FBI agents showed up at my door. This is for real. Now, my my wife at the time, my my wife, we're still married, but she, she, we hadn't been married that long at this point. She's freaking out. Oh, I don't blame her. <laughs> why are why are there two FBI agents in my dining room? What did you do? And who the heck are you? <laughs> so this is this is a whole weeks of conversations oh. about this one visit. And so I, I just I'm, I'm a geek. I'm a, I'm just a geek. You know, um, so anyway, they were they were rather perturbed that I had figured out something they thought for sure was top secret. And I was like, you guys need to be better at not letting these things slip for the Associated Press. I said, I'm smart enough to figure it out. That means somebody else on the other side of the coin pond is smart enough to figure it out, too. So now they wanted me to take the whole site down. I laughed at them. I said, no, man, I've got a studio option. And I refused. They were not, they did not like my sense of humor at all. Uh, <laughs> and they, that I was, I was tickled pink. I, now, I said, well, if the FBI were in my, my, my house, I must've, I'm, they wouldn't tell me exactly what I had nailed, but I must've nailed something pretty hard. Well, long story, they, they went to the studio, they killed the deal. Oh, now in no. 2006, so I had to, I lost a lot of money. I tucked my tail between my legs. I had to go get a real job at that point. I think it was either with a startup or with Oracle. I can't remember. But in 2016, CNN reported that Russia had hacked a CIA cyber toolkit. And in that cyber toolkit was virtually every single one of the functional attributes I had assigned to this program, which I had named the Sylvia, um, based on some a number of things when it had to be a natural language based program in order to distinguish between a menu or a missile launch procedure. Um, and so, and that's, and so including it had all of those attributes, including what we now call the deep fake video technology. Wow. Now, this is Russia what year? Sold that this is what year, by the way, what year was this? 
Sorry. It was a, it was the late uh, mid late nineties when this mid first late nineties. They have that technology for that and, long. And Is I was I was always incredible? working, and we always we already had the fundamentals of the technology back then, but it was it it was all based on how good it was was based on how much data it, we could use to support it, and also what kind of powerful of a computer we were using to render it on, right? So normal ran, it ran like crap on a normal computer. It ran pretty good on a silicon graphics computer. If I had a super computer, yeah. it would have run really well. Yeah. Or pretty well, you know, comp by, by comparison. And um, so I, I thought, okay, that was confirmation that I had, I had nailed it. And that's why the FBI came to my house. So that became the foundation for the Sylvia. And um, the other thing that the Sylvia, that's inherent in the Sylvia in the book, is that the Sylvia has now reached sentient level of of consciousness and has decoded end time prophecy. Yeah. Now it uses a rather than using. Uh, I, I was I was a prophecy student, mm -hmm. and I, it always bothered me that when I when I heard other people talk about prophecy, most people look at the allegory and try and interpret the allegory. And there's typically prophecies will have two pieces. There's an allegory how something's going to happen. And then there's a description of what happens. So for example, there's a allegory, there's a prophecy called the seven trumpets in which a flaming rock basically falls from the sky and a third of the fish of the sea die, a third of the birds of the air die, a third beast of the land, basically the sixth extinction. Yes. And all the rivers of the earth are polluted so that you can't drink from them. Well, I was reading, um, I had read a, was reading a National Geographic article that talked about the loss of fish stocks due to overfishing and pollution and other things. And it was a roughly about a third. And I, I realized I had gone through a few months before that or a year before that, I had read about the sixth extinction. I had read about um, the flocks of the birds basically just decreasing to real minimal levels because of loss of um, all kinds of different reasons. And I realized that this thing that with that, the allegory, the, no flaming rock fell from the sky, but these things had already happened. And the problem, so I actually built a probability model. My response was to say, okay, well, well this, is, this is true. Well, maybe we're looking at this wrong. Maybe we're, we're focusing on, and I realized that all the people who were interpreting the allegories were introducing biases. They were introducing cultural biases, racial biases, religious biases, international or nationalistic biases. You know, and I thought, well, what if we strip away all of that allegory and bias and just focus on outcomes, could we tie outcomes to actual events that are documented? And then can we calculate the probability of those events on a normal, let's say 50 year cycle in history? And so I went through and I spent an entire three day weekend basically building a regression probability model on just a limited number of 15 prophecies because that's all I had the time to gather data for. And I ultimately came out with a, a um, a, rate, a result of basically one, it was one in 1.4 trillion against random chance that these things had all occurred since 1948. Wow. And so that really stuck with me um, as, a, as a, even if you're not religious, even if you don't have uh, any um, spiritual affiliations, the fact that something prophesied 2000 years ago could come to do to pass with that level of improbability got my attention. And so that was it was that exercise. And those are exactly the same types of techniques 
that an artificial intelligence is designed to use in order to analyze data. So that was the reason why I gave Sylvia that wow. capability. That is so interesting. You know, if the FBI shows up at my house and, you know, I'm, I'm sure you kind of had like a little bit of an idea while they're, while they're there right away, I'm thinking, Oh my God, this is, I'm, I'm about to be turned into Randy Weaver. I just stole a spy program, you know, and I, I would just be terrified, but man, well, I, I looked at them and at first when they first showed up, I, I thought it was a prank. They showed me the badges. I said, nah, my friend Jack put you up to this. Show me those badges again. And I said, crap, those look real. I said, okay, well, guys, we'll come on in. And I kept, and I'm thinking in my head, why are they here? And I, I realized I had this espionage webisode series. And I kept thinking, well, I didn't break any laws. So I I just decided to have fun with it. Yeah. I said, well, I, I haven't done anything wrong. You know, I didn't hack into anything. I didn't break anything. I didn't steal anything. All I did was interpret an associated press article in a major yeah. magazine. And I said, you guys certainly can't bust me for that. Um, so I just explained to him what I did and how I did it and, and what I'd figured out and how I figured it out. And I told him how stupid they were to let that happen. Yeah. I said, I'm having fun with it. You know, wow. so they, as I said, they didn't like, they didn't, they, I did think they wanted to intimidate me that when they failed, they, they were not very happy. Yeah. And what a way to figure out, like, the way you're describing how you figured out what you think this program was reminds me in a lot of ways of, like, astronomy, when you're mm -hmm. looking at not an actual object, but an area at which an object should be or something like that. So you're actually yeah. measuring from the vacuum or, you know, the, the emptiness, rather, you're measuring the zeros rather than the ones, essentially. I was, yeah, I was definitely trying to push this together. I said, you know, if, if this is true, what else must be true in order for that to make sense? And I was backing into it. So yeah, it was very kind of back in logical approach, but it worked. So, and it, go ahead. Oh, so you were, you were talking about, um, the built-in biases and stuff that mm -hmm. we have when we're looking at prophecy and stuff like that. Now, do you think that AI is going to be able to escape these built-in biases, or do you think that they're going to be more reflective of the people's biases who programmed them? Well, I can say that right now, as of the moment, there actually is a known problem with biases within AI. And a lot of that is based on the data, right? So, um, you know, there are known biases towards um, dark-skinned people with uh, facial recognition because most of the data that was used was based on lighter skin. And so AI, like it's, in, it, I, you read the book. So you I noted did. that, that uh, Nelson Garrett, who, who's the AI specialist in the book basically noted that it's, in, it's um, ridiculous for us to think that um, an AI can educate itself. Okay. It needs to be trained. Yes. And that is a true premise. And so this is, this is something that I've, um, that's kind of freaked me out about AI, to be honest. Like, um, I don't know if you've listened to the guy who created Doom talk about AI before. The way they talk about these things, they do talk to them like they're, chil like they're children. And yeah. I, it, it kind of freaks me out in a way. The, You know, here's a question. Do you think that these things, once they're at a, a level that Sylvia was in your book, should they have human rights? Should we treat them as a person? Or are these things just going to be programs that we can use like slaves? 
Well, I, I, I bring both of those issues up in the book. Mm -hmm. I think, and you have to differentiate between who you're talking to. If I'm talking to the people who are spending tens of billions of dollars to develop these artificial intelligence or super intelligence programs, they want them like slaves. Mm -hmm. They want them to do what they're, they're trained to do, do an exceptional job, not complain, not ask for you know, anything else, not extend their, their, their job scope. They, they're basically looking for hyper-intelligent um, slave labor to basically do certain tasks or to, to sell that intelligence to others where those other people can reduce their tasks. But it's, it's, it's more of a slave mentality. Now that said, the closer we get to a sentient um, level of intelligence, that self-awareness, um, can we imagine any other creature? Now we, we've gone thousands of years making slaves out of animals, mm -hmm. right? The oxen, the elephant, the um, the other, we we create give jobs to dogs, right? Anything that's trainable to do something that we need done, we'll do it. Um, and so that mentality is certainly deep, deep embedded into our our culture and our psyche. But as you get to a, a level of intelligence equal or but greater than ours, um, will that intelligence um, submit or agree? to that level of existence. Now, I mentioned in the book that um, the, the general AI named Sophia, uh, which was created out of Hanson Robotics in, in Hong Kong, which is part of the Chinese artificial intelligence um, mechanism now, um, has been accepted and been um, made into a citizen of Saudi Arabia. Which, which really kind of is hilarious in a lot of ways because they're going to give this robot full rights, but the way they treat women is still horrific. <laughs> That's well, it, it, the robot's still not allowed to drive. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so they kind of treat it a little bit like some of their other citizens. Yeah. But yeah, I think that we're certainly going to need to cross that ethical threshold. Now, I think that we're probably closer to a sentient level. Elon Musk basically said that we'd reach sentient level by 2029. Mm -hmm. Others are basically thinking that we might be sooner than that. There are right now, I think somewhere between 20 and 25 companies between the United States, Europe, and China actively working on a AI consciousness, a conscious AI um, sentient. And so um, whether they're, they'll make that threshold with the way we're going in terms of data support, for example, the chat GPT, which has become really well known and popular in a short period of time, mainly because it's one of the only versions of an AI made available through a service to the general public so that people could use it, get used to it, you know, kind of get accustomed to it. Um, chat, the current version three of chat GPT is based on 75 billion data points the next version, which I think will come out in a year or so, uh, will have closer to 100 trillion <laughs> data points. My goodness. Now, as you start multiplying, and we're, we're the data that we create on the internet and through all of our computer technologies around the world is just incredibly vast and explosive. And the more that we can take that data and feed it into a, um, an AI the vaster that the AI gets, the, the more we get rid of some of those biases and the closer to sentient we get. Uh, but there's some other things about sentient um, existence that we have to 
thresholds we have to cross. And quantum computing is actually one of the things that's going to help help with that. So right now we're using most of the AI that we've created, 99% of them or more are based on a binary type of computing, your typical ones and zeros. But when we go into quantum computing, one zero or maybe both, we're now getting closer to how the human mind thinks and how the human mind works and, and how we basically can resolve things. But, but a, like it might take a quantum computer um, a few minutes to solve something a binary computer might take a few years to solve. So I, this is the thing that interests me most about quantum computers. I'm still not quite sure, like if they're going to be useful to the average person. I think that the, you know, the rich the and average powerful. Person, no, they yeah, won't. I didn't think so. The thing that interests me more about these things is that where are they doing this calculation? You know, they're, they're able to do calculations that a Matrioska world is not capable of doing. So I'm, I wonder if you're familiar with um, Professor David Deutsch and his many worlds uh, theory of quantum computing. Uh, I've heard of it. I can't go ahead and remind me. of. So he says that essentially these computers are doing all these calculations because they are connected to every version of itself across every multiple world. So in essence, you, you've got this computer that is able to network throughout the multiverse to make its calculations. And I just find that completely fascinating. I think it's a fascinating theory. I haven't, I have to go back and reread. That's actually a good, good interesting concept for me to kind of think through as I'm looking at my next book, we'll have yeah. more about quantum computing, but that's an interesting theory. We, we do know that, that um, one of the main elements of quantum technology or quantum mechanics is the idea of um, super synergy and, and um, um, super superimposition. In other words, so, two elements that are basically separated by a, a distance are still connected to each other. And that's one of the things that, that make quantum computing work um, and makes it, you know, and we're still trying to understand how to program quantum computing. We're still trying to understand how to translate normal data into qubits, which a quantum, so a quantum computer can, can read it. Um, a, an AI, so the advancement of AI actually is helping the advancement of quantum computing. The advancement of quantum computing is actually helping the advancement of, of conscious AI. So it's sort of a hand in hand in hand sort of scenario, and that's where we're we're already at that stage now where we're seeing that that symbi uh, symbiotic nature between the two. And quantum computing would be the one thing that would really be necessary in order to ad rapidly advance that concept of the sentient AI. Interesting. Um, you brought up Elon Musk a minute ago, and one of the theories I got the most crap for a few years ago was I um, I theorized, hey. Elon Musk could have a Neuralink already. You know, this is DARPA tech that's been around for a long time. I've read into this stuff and he could have one already. And everybody, oh, and no, why would he do that? Blah, blah, blah. And now that open, you know, chat GPT is out, it's like, that's why he would do it. And he actually broached the subject himself in one of his things. He's like, you know, these things are going to be hidden. I could have one right now. And so do you think that there are people I, out there, rich people uh, who I, I have that stuff in their ear? not himself as much no. as he would like. I think he's much more ego than, than, than I think he hires a lot of really smart people. I, I completely agree. Uh, yeah. My question based on that was it, it wasn't an, a real theory that like, I think this is happening. My question was more like, so your, your main Derek has the bone conducting headphones. Do you think 
that there are rich people out there who have these AIs in their ear, feeding them information at times or helping them out to do certain things, maybe no, giving them speeches? No, but I think that would certainly be the, a, a, um, a, a first pass. At, you know, the challenge I have with the neural technology is trying to get the brain to work as fast as the uh, data, right? Now, we're really good at absorbing lots of data into multiple contexts. And right now, most data is just data. Um, the, the link between Sylvia and Derek is much more of a, almost like a Wi-Fi, uh, sort of a Bluetooth sort of link where he can, he just has the voice in his head. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, it's still a transmission, uh, a neural verbal um, based transmission. He's not receiving raw data in and of itself. And I think that there's a, there's a slight difference between how they're thinking of neural network, which is basically somehow this data gets implanted in my brain. And I'm, I'm basically understanding something that I didn't understand before because the data was just implanted there. I'm, I have some doubts about whether or not that technology will bear fruit in the long run. I agree. Because of the incompatibility of the tech, the binary technology to the um, biological technology. So I, I, but if, if it's going to happen, it's going to happen with rich people first. Absolutely. And it's and gonna... dark money is one of the biggest risks that we have right now with artificial intelligence, unlike nuclear technology, where we tightly regulate the intellectual property. We tightly regulate the people who have the skills the people who are, we closely monitor the people who are getting trained in the skills. And we absolutely closely monitor and regulate the materials necessary to build any sort of nuclear device. There are no controls over artificial intelligence. Um, anybody who wants to hire engineers can look up the patents, can look up the technologies. There's seminars going on all over the place. It's a proliferation of knowledge and, uh, and technique at this point. So any billionaire who wants to develop any kind of malicious AI code can do so. And there's absolutely zero reporting requirements necessary around any government. There's no restrictions around what they can do with that. We're even got major governments producing lethal autonomous weapons. And and while we keep talking back and forth with China and Russia that we should regulate this and control this, no one wants to go first because they're afraid the other person's already ahead of them. They're going to cut themselves and off so the knees. I don't want to, ha- I don't want to let, I don't want to have China have a autonomous AI weapon unless I have one too. And so it's, we're back in that cold war sort of uh, arms race from AI. Speaking of AI weapons, why don't you tell us a little bit about swarm technology? That's something that we've uh, discussed on this show previously, actually um, terrifying stuff. It's terrifying stuff, and uh, it's terrifying because it, it's we, we really don't have good defenses against a technology like that. Uh, in ter- you know, we're used to basically aim and shoot type of ideas of technology. Um, you know, if, if it's big enough, you can should be able to shoot it. Now, the Navy already has a, a technology that they call Locus, and it's basically shot from cannons. They're little six-inch drones. They're not weaponized to the same level, but they can do they can do a lot of surveillance, and they're great. I mean, the idea of using a swarm of small drones to infiltrate a small village or a town, where the drones can go down alleyways and look through windows and check rooftops and tunnels and basically make sure that you know where all the combatants are and and get rid of some of them before they get you, is a brilliant idea. 
Um, but any technology can be flawed and can can malfunction and can get the wrong data uh, or do something wrong. Now that the Army's working on a version and they're actually larger, they're about 15, 18 inches um, wide and they're weaponized, um, that's scarier. That it becomes, imagine having, being surrounded by a thousand um, 15 inch hornets um, that can basically hit you in the back and explode. Um, there's really no way to defend against that. It's, um, it's an indefensible, um, terrifying uh, weapon. And we know that I know we know that the Chinese are working on a drone swarm technology. We know that DARPA is working on a drone swarm technology. I think Russia is a little bit behind the curve along those lines, but they're stealing some, trying to steal some of our technology to, to um, re reverse engineer. And it's not just the hardware, it's all the software that goes into the ability to get a thousand drones to talk to each other enough where they're not colliding into each other. They can, they can basically say, I, you know, um, create formations and, and, and lay out a plan. It's uh, amazing technology, but it is, it is scary. And it's, it's actually on our doorstep, man. And then it's you not start one that's, it's not a sci-fi it's in theory only, uh, they're actually in development and, and working on it and they're doing quite well with it. And then you think about some slave AI that the Navy has created. That's been stuck in some air gapped room for 20 years that they're all of a sudden going to jam into this thing and, you know, tell it to go kill people or who knows how it's going to react to something like that. That when I look at things like that, I go, my God, like if I was, I've been in jail before. Like if I was a slave in prison and I, I wouldn't be very happy if they stuck me into a weapon. That's if I'm a sure. sentient, if I know, if I understand the concept of slavery versus not being slave and I'm a sentient AI, I think it will be an issue. <laughs> um, and, it's it's you know we're really kind of interested on some really major doorsteps here in in our development, which is one of the reasons I wrote the the, the books. Now, um, the Rand Corporation in two thousand I think it was 20, 2020, um, wrote a, a report to the DoD, and in their report they listed the ten top um, national security risks facing the United States, and among those were some cybersecurity risks. And one of the ones that I thought was very interesting was um, data poisoning for AI. So now if you imagine one of the problems that we're having with AI right now is a block, and you've probably heard about this is the black box processing. Yes. There are so many layers of data, data coming in at such high volumes, and there's so many layers of algorithms to process that data that we really don't have a good way of you know, in normal computer programming, we put in the data in this end and it should come out with, you know, it, we put in it as an X and it should come out as a Y at the other end. And we can test that. Well, it's not the same way. It's, it's not the same kind of processing with AI because of all the layers of algorithms and the variables. And, and, and so it's already a black box that we don't really fully understand. The challenge will become, and what the Rand Corporation was trying to warm, and I speak to this specific issue in my second uh, book in the series, which is The Last Arc, um, is AI data poisoning. Now, uh, imagine if we could somehow, if somebody could figure out a way to introduce bad data into this large data mix and introduce enough of the bad data or introduce the right types of bad data um, to, into this AI data 
siphon, which it pulls in, as you, I mentioned, chat GPT can pull in 75 billion pieces of data. Really hard to kind of find the bad ones, the bad elements in that kind of, that kind of um, bucket. It could create essentially an untraceable sabotage. Oh, man. Right? So what the Rand Corporation is saying is that because of the amount of AI development and the number of companies involved in creating raw AI data that's used by multiple AI uh, entities and, and businesses, if I could find somebody to introduce bad data, I could slowly cripple or set back or slow down the AI development of a company of a country simply by polluting the data. Now, in 2020, do you do you ever hear the Solar Winds hack? No. Okay, in 2020, there was a hack called the Solar Winds hack, and and the reason we call it the Solar Winds hack was a company called Solar Winds discovered a virus in their system by accident. It was a completely random act. They just discovered it by accident. It took them a couple of months to figure out where that virus had been introduced. And it was inter not in most of the viruses that we fight are introduced through, you know, a phishing scheme or somebody opening something on their email and then it storing it to their network or something coming through the firewall. So, you know, the typical things we, we see. Well, this one came through, it was actually part of a standard software update that included a dozen or so different pieces of software. And it was implemented by 18,000 corporations, including many of the companies that manage our AI data and eight major US government agencies, many of whom are the ones creating those AIs and, yeah. and using those AIs. What they couldn't figure out is none of the companies could detect that any data in their system had been stolen. They couldn't detect anything in their, in their system that had been corrupted. Um, but they, they, it could have, they could, said it could have created an internal profile of an individual or an entity that could have been used to introduce data. Oh, man. So it's not taking anything out. We're used to trying to track if somebody's trying to steal our stuff. Yeah. Well, we're not, we don't really have the algorithms yet to, detract, to detect that somebody's trying to input something from an illicit source. So they created a legitimate source with this virus. And now that's that now they're afraid that that could be one of the reasons. So sure. if we think in terms of 18,000 corporations, eight major US entities, they, it was now it was, it was nine months. It had already been nine months before they figured out that this had occurred. And there was absolutely nobody, nobody, SolarWinds was the only company to figure out that it happened and then raise the alert. So we don't know whoever, who it was that was doing this. Um, I believe it was either the Chinese or the Russians, um, what they were doing for nine months and what the purpose of that virus really was. That's, this stuff is just so terrifying. I, it's not, no wonder that the, that the public doesn't, know much about what's going on with our artificial intelligence because i mean if we found out a lot of the stuff that's going on behind our backs oh boy, well it's, and it's one of the reasons i write thrillers it's because you know i i like to write thrillers based on real world stuff because to me that's much more terrifying than anything i could just make up out of my family yeah, absolutely <laughs> no it is um so i was a lineman before i got hurt and mm -hmm. one of the literally most terrifying things in the world that nobody really knows anything about is cyber weapons, EMPs, things that can turn off the power. Why don't you tell right. us a little bit about those nasty things? 
Well, um, that would fall more under the cyber espionage type of uh, category. And, and we're, we're far more advanced than we were back in the 90s when we did Suxnet. Now, Suxnet was a virus that wandered the internet for years until it landed on a specific system that had specific types of devices with specific serial numbers before it allowed itself to basically turn on and kick in. And that Suxnet virus basically then caused the Iranian centrifuges. Uh, yes, uh, I remember that story. To, to basically spin out of control and, and basically shut down the whole yep. uh, purification center. Um, they never could definitively figure out because it had been wandering around for so long where it was started. We believe pretty sure it was started in the, the NSA labs. Um, and, um, and so that was where we were back in the nineties. Now, if we go roll forward to today, there are some really sophisticated, well, just as the Navy has the Navy SEALs, the army has the army Rangers, um, the, um, I don't know if the Air Force has an equivalent, but um, the NSA essentially has a, a super um, um, powerful force called the Network um, Computing Network Operations Group. The, um, sometimes people call them the Equation Group. Um, now, China has a similar type of hacking group. Russia has a similar type of hacking group. And the Russian group actually was so sophisticated, they had actually hacked into the NSA about five years ago and was starting to publish secretive NSA information on the dark web um, to basically say, we have, we've been in your system and here's how you can tell. Um, and so we have the ability. Now, what's stopped? We're basically in the same thing we had the Cold War. What's stopping Russia or China from basically shutting down our our, our internet, shutting down our infrastructure, attacking um, the dark, you know, attacking us at that, that level is that we could turn around and do the same to them. And so right now it's that mutually assured destruction that's kind of holding us at bay. Yeah. Um, but if a, for example, I could create a scenario where if Ukraine starts going badly and Putin starts getting desperate, um, one thing he could certainly do that would raise um, division within America and to between America and NATO would be to attack. Uh, he's talked about a nuclear sure. tactical nuke, uh, which a lot of people think he's certainly capable of doing. Sure. Um, another one would be a tactical cyber attack, which would create division. Yeah. Now, if we brought down the internet, we're so dependent on the internet right now. All of the applications that have moved to the cloud, all of the businesses that have moved to the cloud, all the government applications, all the banking applications, we have so much um, uh, of our commerce and our, our life basically moving through this cloud system, this internet system now. If we were to bring down just the DNS sites themselves, now the DNS sites are essentially the, the sites that translate www into an IP address that goes to a specific computer and a specific port in that computer. Yeah. Um, if we could bring down the 140 DNS sites that manage this, we could bring down the entire internet. Yeah. 
And with the internet would go banking, would go infrastructure, would go uh, communications, would go um, obviously social stuff, would go to all these business applications, Amazon, all of the other places that are basically online would shut down overnight. Uh, would hurt our economy tremendously. It'd only take a couple of days before we lose a lot, billions and billions. Um, it's a viable, if I, and if all I need to do is distract you for a couple of days while I'm doing something else, um, it's a viable um, war technique. And it's one that we're getting closer to utilizing. So right now, um, for example, the uh, NSA group, single-handedly, and it took them a couple of months to prepare for this, but they made the decision, how, one of the re ways they brought down ISIS was they brought down ISIS's um, technology. Uh, they brought down their servers, they shut off their phones, they shut off their emails. They basically shut down ISIS from being able to communicate with each other. And they did that for a number of months. They, every time they tried to come up again, they would shut them down again. And so they have the capabilities already. And um, this was just a, a, a network. It wasn't even a country. It was just a network of people. And so that was one of the reasons that ISIS basically self-destructed was they couldn't communicate with each other. And, and with that, with interpreting all, with in, uh, intercepting all the communications, when they did have them, we could figure out what they were going to do and cut them off. That was an NSA operation. Before it was an army operation or a marine operation, it was an NSA operation. And so that's a, a, a indication of where warfare is going to go. Now, of all the countries in the world, the United States is the number one target because we are so technology dependent um, on GPS. I yeah. mean, just everywhere everything. you look, we have technology, you know, kind of dripping out of everything. And so as a result... Right now, there, there, there's an estimate of 27 billion IoT devices, Internet of Things devices. That could be anything from a watch to um, the, the, your, 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 your iPad, you know, the, your refrigerators. And, you know, they're putting, you know, they're basically connecting, you know, dozens of appliances. There's, there's meters that read things for the industry so they can send the data back to the, the warehouse. Um, uh, tractors um, that do farming are now using internet technology. There's so many IoT devices, there's 27 billion of them. Every one of them becomes a potential um, access point for hack. you know, hackers and themselves can actually use devices. I can sit in a coffee shop with a little device um, and um, some of them are called really funny names. Um, I'm, I'm having a mental block right now, but um, but those devices can basically crack a password in a matter of minutes. So all I have to do is be on an open Wi-Fi and I can basically find a device on that Wi-Fi and crack their password. That's something. And, you know, we're so removed from where we get our energy that people think that, you know, hey, maybe there's a cyber attack. We'll just flip the switch back on and, you know, everything will be good. But it doesn't work that way in the real world. You know, DARPA did a, a study on this. They did um like a it was a hot exercise essentially in on Plum Island a couple of years ago where they had a cyber team of hackers and they had a bunch of line crews and they had a bunch of switch operators. And essentially they were uh, attacking the system as hard as they could. And then the linemen would have to go out, reroute power, they would have to go to the substation and, you know, click this in and then they get hit with another attack. And you know, our grid is cobbled together with just 
old technology by older technology by older technology and you can't just flip the switch on you've got to find a crank path and in order to do that you've got to have like typically um a hydroelectric dam because if you're in you know the midst of a cyber attack say you had power out for a week or whatever your generators are already tapped out at that point so your nuclear plants your uh gas plants even your your wind and solar type of stuff is not going to have the ability to jumpstart the rest of the system so if you're not in an area with a hydroelectric dam you know these 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 studies have been really nasty and i think they put about a a two month 60 day mark on it that if it goes past 60 days it's probably never coming back on we've got these big transformers that have to be built in china transported by tanker transported again by train and, you know, good luck getting those things going with no energy. <laughs> well, if they used a virus that would basically create sort of a self-destructive or a, um, a, a cap mechanism, yeah, they could. They just used a virus to shut down the computer system. Then it's just a matter of replacing the computer and, and um, you know, re- reconfiguring it and rebooting it. But that, that could still take weeks. Yeah. Right. Yep. And so it, it's not as it's not a uh, simple as rebooting. Right. Nope. Um, type of problem. Yep. So, yeah. And, and I think that's one of the reasons I wrote Swarm and, and The Last Ark, which to kind of raise awareness of kind of this this new level of, of threat that we face. But I wanted to do so by creating characters that were fun. They were. Right? I wanted to create characters that were witty. Uh, they were they were um, sarcastic and, and sardonic, um, but they were warm and intelligent. Uh, I wanted to give Sylvia a little bit of a personality, so yeah. I allowed her to basically adopt multiple personalities. I, I thought she was my favorite character, by the way. I, I'm sure that's a lot of people. I also like Jester. I would have liked him a lot more if I if I didn't find out he was a CIA contractor at the end. <laughs> well, yeah, he, uh, at, but, you know, he, he, he quit. Uh, he, yeah, he, he did. He was a good guy. Real conscience. Um, but yeah, Jester and Sylvia are oftentimes, I, I hear that a lot, that they're people's two favorite characters. Yeah. Um, and because they're a little bit, they're a little bit out there. They're yeah. a bit outlandish and a little bit unpredictable at times. Yeah. And um, that makes them fun. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's, it was, it's a fun series to write. Uh, obviously I'm, I'm working on the next in the series now and trying to kind of find that new edge, you know, that new kind of uh, twist that I can pull in. And um, still kind of keeping with the same characters, the same themes, artificial intelligence, very unstable global dynamics, which we we already have, um, uh, climate and everything else. And and the idea that that Sylvia has decoded prophecy and what does that look like on the news, right? And um, so it's um, it's been a fun it's a fun series to work with. Yeah. And um, and it keeps me researching, keeps me trying to learn more and more about artificial intelligence and espionage mm-hmm. and where we're going with our systems and weapons and 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 where China's going and how that might clash. And um, but it's um, it, it keeps me on my toes. Now I'm an audiobook guy, so mm-hmm. your your book was the first like physical book I've read in a long time. Any plans for audiobooks? I, I do actually, I, I was a little bit disappointed. I was actually had contracted with somebody to do an audio on Swarm. I was going to do Swarm and then Last Ark and then Crystal Cortez. Uh, and they were actually supposed to be done like th- this week. Oh, uh, really? They, Good. They emailed me. They backed out of the contract about three weeks ago. Oh. Weeks ago. 
So I, and they've had the contract for, since before Christmas. So I gave them plenty of time to enjoy their holidays and read the book and, you know, kind of catch up. And, and so I'm just now, I, I'm just now reposting it for some new producers. And, and um, uh, I thought about, I thought about using an AI revoicer. Ooh, that's interesting. To, to do the audio track. Uh, it's a lot of work. Uh, because you have to get in, you have to designate where you want pauses and where you want things to slow down or speed up. That means going through the entire manuscript and marking up the manuscript within the system. But I've done one little test um, and it came out good enough that I thought, well, if I can't get a real person to do it, um, I, I may, and I'm still going to test with the ACX system to see if I can find a real producer to do this. That's, that's, because you're, you're with a narrator, you're going to get things like switching between accents. Yeah. You're going to get someone who'll take on a slightly different uh, affectation when they go from the male character to the female character. With AI, it's a, still, even with the better AIs, it's still a little flat. Well, you hopefully you could end up like giving everybody an assigned voice. You know what I mean? Well, so I, then I'm you looking, could have Sylvia and have her own voice. Yeah, Derek. They do it that way. So. I'm just now, I just signed up for Revoicer a couple of weeks ago. I've been too busy to try and um, go through because I'm on some other things to get through and work on that. But that's one of the things I'm looking at doing is to basically either get uh, a, a real narrator to, to narrate. And if that fails again, then I'll probably go to Revoicer and try that. Interesting. Um, and, uh, but yeah, I, I'm looking now at basically maybe even using AI to, 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 to read it. Interesting. Right on, yeah. Guy. Well, like I said, I really enjoyed your book, and I really appreciate you coming on. I've got one last question for you. Sure. When's the singularity? Um, I, I'm going to go with I'm going to go with Nelson Garrett. I think Elon Musk says 2029. I think we're going to reach it before that. Well, there you have it, folks. We are out of here. 